0: I want to thank each and every one of you for braving the elements to be here with us today, and I want you to look around and see those who are not here that are normally sitting near you, and just reach out to them today and encourage them. I know that people are seeking to act in accordance with wisdom in regards to their own uh, place here with this storm, so please don't let them, uh, even though they're not here to fellowship with us, please don't let those who remained home uh, feel alone today. Reach out to them and encourage them. I also just want to say one more thing that, Henry, you did a great job introducing about Fanny Crosby. There's a quote that Fanny Crosby once said when she was asked uh, if she could receive her sight back. Um, what, would she, what would she do? How would she feel? And she says, I don't really want to get my sight back because I prefer that the very first thing I see is the face of my Savior. And so what a, what a beautiful saint she was in so many ways and uh, we are thankful for the legacy that she left behind for us to continue to sing those glorious songs to Christ. At this time, let's turn our attention to the Word. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. We are nearing the end here of our time in the summer in Isaiah. Next week will be our last time Isaiah until next June. So we are coming here to a close, and I'm really excited for what we have before us today. One of the skills necessary to write a good book is to know when to make a chapter break. For example, in a novel, the desire is to end each chapter with some kind of a a hook or some kind of a cliffhanger that makes the reader hungry to turn the next page. Remember that the text of your Bible, that's inspired by God. But there are a lot of things in your Bible that are not inspired by God. For example, all of the things that are in small print below those normal-sized words in your Bible those are commentary. Those are added by others. Those can be wrong. The words that are the normal size letters, those are the infallible Word of God, and they are accurate. And so what I want you to understand is that the chapters and the verse divisions, they are also not inspired by God. Those are not in the original manuscripts. Those have been added later. In fact, the chapter divisions that we, we find They were helpful, but they were made by an Archbishop of Canterbury named Stephen Langton all the way back in 1227 AD. Now, for the most part, these chapter divisions are really beneficial. They help us to remember where things are and to catalog them. They collect blocks of narrative and arguments into cohesive and digestible pieces. However, there are a few places in the Bible where Langton made editorial decisions that absolutely baffle the mind. Why in the world would he cut the chapter there? Our text today is one of those really poorly divided sections. In fact, I would venture to say that this is the absolutely worst chapter division in the entire Bible. For that reason, we are going to break with our summer tradition... And we are not going to cover the entire chapter today. Instead, we are only going to focus in on the first 12 verses, and we will lump in 13, 14, and 15 with next week's chapter, where I believe it should be. Now, for that reason, we were considering that beginning part, and I would ask this time you would follow along as I read to you that first section of the chapter. This is God's holy, powerful, life-changing words. He says, Awake! Awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall, be, uh, there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you, you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am." How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem." The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart! Depart! Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Let's pray. Father, we ask that today, as we come before this text, you would enlighten us, you would enliven us, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us wisdom. Lord, we rely on you, we trust in you, and we ask today for your work in our life. Father God, we pray for anyone in the room that is not yet saved, that you would use this passage to awaken them to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you may have come to expect by now, we are once again hearing the call to the people of Judah to get up and leave Babylon when the time of exile has come to a conclusion. Last week, we did a lot of the groundwork of preparing for today's text by establishing both the immediate way that these prophecies were fulfilled and also considering the long-term fulfillment that we see made manifest in Christ and in his church. For the sake of developing a really strong foundation here, what I want to do out- at the outset here, it's to simply hammer home the dual nature of fulfillment that we find here in chapter 52. Look with me to verse 1. He says, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Now the key word that's really going to help us here to understand the near and the far fulfillments of this prophecy, can be seen by tracing the word Zion through Scripture. Notice that here in verse 1, Zion is a clear reference to the city of Jerusalem. Using Hebrew, Hebrew poetic poetry and parallelism, Isaiah here gives a mirror command to this literal city with two names. He tells the people who belong to Zion, those who belong to Jerusalem, put on strength, Put on beautiful garments. Now let's do a little bit of digging and consider where this term Zion comes from. If today's sermon was a movie, this would be the flashback section. So let me jump in the Wayback Machine here and take us all the way back to the time of Joshua. After wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, the people of Israel were finally permitted to go into the land. And if you remember, God commanded them through Joshua to go in and to conquer they were supposed to go and destroy all the inhabitants of Canaan and for the most part they did and for the most part the land was conquered however there were a few places where the people of God gave up and they forgot the command to completely remove the nations and therefore there were some who remained we find one such example in Joshua 15:63 where it says but the Jebusites the inhabitants of Jerusalem The people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So at the time of the writing of Joshua, the city of Jerusalem was still inhabited by the wicked and violent tribe called the Jebusites. Zion is the name that the Jebusites called Jerusalem. It was the title of their city during that time. And this city is a naturally fortified city. It is like a natural castle on a hill. It is built into a large outcropping of rocks with steep cliffs and with jagged terrain. And this made Zion like an impregnable fortress. And it remained in the hands of these Jebusites for another 400 and some odd years after the conquest of the land. Then one day, there was a boy born just about two miles away from that city. And this little boy grew up on a farm, some kind of a sheep farm over in that area called Bethlehem. And he grew up in the shadow of this beautiful, towering city nearby. And it's likely that he was often warned by his parents, do not go near that city. Do not go near those cliffs. The people who live there are your enemies. They are violent. They are dangerous. Do not touch. Do not travel in that direction. If you've ever seen The Lion King, that is the elephant graveyard. Do not go there. The light does not touch it. He grew up in the shadow of that city, constantly looking at it. And that little boy was named David. And he grew up to eventually become the king. Now, there's a lot that we learn about after Saul's death, before David is actually crowned king and acknowledged king by all of Israel. But when we arrive at 2 Samuel chapter 5... In the first five verses, we see that David is now acknowledged as king by the entire community. And what is the very first thing he does with his newfound authority? Here's what we find in the very next verse after he is crowned king. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here. But the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. Do you realize what they're saying? Look, we are so powerful. We are so well defended. Our walls are so strong and our natural defense is so great that even the people in our city who are blind and who cannot walk, they will fight you off. We won't have to raise a finger. This is the first time we see Jerusalem referred to as Zion in in the Bible. And do you know what the word Zion actually means? No, you don't. And neither do I. And neither does anybody else. Because by the time the Jebusites were using that term, it was probably already over 2,000 years old, probably from an extinct Ugaritic language that was not even used at that time. The Jebusites probably stole that city from someone else and just kept the name. So we don't even know what the term Zion means. However, from this point forward, Zion would be a reference to the new capital of God's people in Jerusalem. Sometimes it is referring to a physical place. But when God is using it in Isaiah 52, the people are not in that physical place. And yet he says, return, O people of Zion. It is the people who make a city, not the location. And so he tells the people of Zion, go to the city Jerusalem. So back in Isaiah 52, at this point in redemptive history, Zion is mostly referring to the city of Jerusalem, occasionally referring to the people of God. But throughout the prophets, we see glimpses that it must mean something more. For example... Look back to that very first verse and you will see that there are aspects of this prophecy that cannot be present. They must be looking forward to the future. They cannot be just about a physical city. They must be about something different. At the end of this verse, it says, For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Now the people of Judah, they did go back to Jerusalem. By God's grace, they did rebuild the temple. They rebuilt those walls But there was never a time when the the city was uninhabited by anyone who was unclean. In fact, if you read to the end of the book of of Nehemiah, where they rebuild those walls, you'll see that by the end of the chapter, Nehemiah goes on a rampage where he's literally beating up people because they are intermarrying with the Canaanites around them, already falling back into the same errors as their forefathers. There was never a time when the people were completely free of the, quote, uncircumcised and unclean. What does that even mean? Uncircumcised here is not just a reference to the physical body. It is a reference to all those who are outside of the covenant of God. And unclean is a reference to those who are impure because of sin. Jerusalem has always been filled with people who are full of sin. This must be about a future city, not one that is physical but one that is spiritual. It must be distant fulfillment. Here we see the answer to this prophecy in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Now in the book of Hebrews, you have to understand what the author is doing. He is making a strategic argument to people who have come to Christ but are fearful of persecution. These people were interested in going back into Judaism, going back under the law, saying, well, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, so why don't we just kind of wait out this violent torture that's taking place against all these Christians? Let's just worship the same God under the old system, and then maybe someday we'll come back into this system when the fire dies down a little bit. Well, the author of Hebrews tells them that if you go back, there is no salvation for you. There is no longer a way to Christ through the old covenant law. And he tells them that Jesus has fulfilled it. Therefore, he is now the only way to the Father. And Hebrews tells them not to go back into that system also because there are immense benefits that you only receive by being in Christ. Now, in the middle part of chapter 12, he writes, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God heavenly jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festival gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to god the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word of a better word than the blood of abel now notice these are not future blessings he's referencing here these are things that every christian experiences daily If you have not been washed by the blood, if you have not heard that better word spoken over you by the blood of Christ, then you have not been saved. These are not heavenly, eternal blessings being referenced. He is saying, do not leave these things that you have now. Look at the first words. But you have come to Mount Zion. It's important that we see here what he's saying. Hebrew parallelism is showing us that the assembly of the believers, the assembly of those, as he calls those who are enrolled in heaven, are paralleled with Zion itself. What is Zion that we find here in this chapter? He is saying, if you are a Christian, you have come to the promised place that the Old Testament kept telling you about. You have come to be surrounded by and partnered with the people of God. If you are saved, you are part of Zion. You are currently the inhabitant of a holy city. And only those who are part of the covenant purified with the blood of Christ can ever enter that city. The church is not the building. The church is not the gathering place. The church is the gathered people of God. The church is not made up of believers and unbelievers. The church is only those who are saved. This is one of the things we see here in terms of Zion. No uncircumcised or impure one will ever come into your midst again the only true church of God is made up of those who have been purified by God himself we will see also that later in scripture we see Zion being referred to as the eternal heavenly home so although we experience life as a body here together the final fulfillment will be when we gather with Christ without hindrance in heaven forever So the first fulfillment was that physical city on the hill. But there is a far fulfillment for every believer right now. In the Old Covenant, we see that they were to go back to that city on a hill in Jerusalem. Now we are told by Christ, you are to be that city on a hill, wherever you go. So if you're sticking with me, congratulations, we've made it through verse 1. The remaining time that we have, what I want to do here are see two ways that Christ brings us our redemption and two commands for the church. So we're going to see how he has bought the church, and now we're going to see how he leads the church. Look again with me now to verses 3 through 6. It reads, For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, We remember that, right? The times of slavery. And then the Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. We remember that, right? The time the Assyrians came down and destroyed the northern kingdom. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Speaking of Babylon, bringing them into exile. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. In order to understand what's being said here, it is first necessary to understand the system of slavery in the ancient world. It was far different than the evil system of oppression that existed in the global slave trade that was abolished by many countries about 150 years ago, including our own. In Israel, Slavery was a social safety net that allowed people who had experienced immense hardship or who had experienced foolish lifestyles to pay off their debts and to earn large income enough to become independent. Slaves were never required to work more than seven years before they would then be set free to take all of their earnings and start a new life. It was like bankruptcy. It was a reset button. But the only reason the system worked was because a, matter, a master would be willing to pay off your debt and therefore bring you into his service. So let's say you go out and you go gambling. And uh, not only do you gamble and lose all your money, but you really think you're going to win, so you borrow as much money as you possibly can. You go to Chase Bank, and then you go to the... Um, td bank down the road and then you go to bank of america and then you go and you get as much money as each one will give you and then you go to every single family member you can find and you go back to the casino and guess what you lose every penny and now there's nothing but a massive amount of debt on your head and those people who you owe money are not the most savory of people and they are going to come after you and you fear for your life you fear for your family, so what do you do? If you lived in these days, you would find a wealthy person, you would tell them your dilemma, you would say, please pay my debt, I will serve you seven years, Do whatever I will do whatever you ask, all you need to do is get rid of that debt for me. In the Jewish system, even though the master would pay the debt, he would also still pay that servant. He would still give them a wage, and the servant didn't use that to live. They were also given all of their housing and all of their food by the master so that all of the money they earned for seven years would be collected for them and given to them in a lump sum to use upon their departure. What's important to understand about that is if this were to take place correctly, then that person was far better off after their slavery than they were before. But I want you to notice what we just read. God says to Judah... You sold yourself for nothing. Your debts were not paid. All of that stuff that you owed, you still owe. That is terrible news because the the fact is you can never pay it yourself. But there is an upside here because since you were sold for nothing, there is no claim over you by the Egyptians or by the Assyrians or by the people of Babylon. So we don't have to give anything to them. We can just say, come out of there. We see that taking place in the near fulfillment of this prophecy when King Cyrus took power and simply declared the people of Judah, go free. But there is a much richer distant fulfillment that is manifested by Christ himself. Uh, the Apostle Peter, he actually picks up this exact same redemption language, this buying and selling of slavery language. This metaphor is continued in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, where he writes, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, or spot. You see, God says, I don't have to pay Babylon anything. But he says to us, I'm going to pay for you. I'm going to pay for your salvation. The cost of your salvation was unimaginably high. Your salvation was Not made possible simply by the decree of a king, like we see with Cyrus. Your salvation was costly. It was the most expensive price ever to be paid for anything in the history or future of the universe. Jesus laid down his life so that we might be set free from both sin and its effects. Now let's consider a second aspect of Christ's redemptive work found here in this chapter. Look again starting in verse 6 and we'll run through verse 10. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful are the um, upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voices together. They sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Israel. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now it's likely that most of you are familiar with some of the words found here in this chapter. Paul uses one portion of this passage all the way over in romans chapter 10 to explain that we must be going and sending the gospel into the world and these words do apply to us they do instruct us they do encourage us to go be messengers who have beautiful feet and carry the gospel all over wherever we go however what i want you to see right now is that jesus is the greatest missionary who ever lived He is the one being referenced here when it says in verse 6, Here I am. Jesus has come. Jesus arrived in the flesh to live a life that shook the planet. Now there are people who love Christ and there are people who hate him. There are people who find him to be significant and people who find him to be absolutely objectionable. However, nobody can ever argue that Jesus is not the most influential person in all of history. He has unambiguously presented himself to the world in a way that has declared righteousness to everyone. Jesus is the one who publishes peace. He is the one that publishes salvation. He is the one who declares to us, God reigns. Jesus is the one who brought good news because Jesus himself is the good news. I love how Isaiah describes this display of God's power and presence in the person of Christ here in verse 10. He says, "The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God." What exactly does it mean that God has bared his arm to them? Now remember last week we learned that when the Bible references the arm of the Lord, it is a reference the messianic hope of christ jesus is the one who has come to carry out the action plan of the father so when it uses that term arm of the lord it is a way of speaking of jesus back when i was in high school i played on a basketball team and one time in my sophomore year we were playing a game against the wichita angels i remember very clearly there was a teammate of mine who every time he ran down the court he would run funny this one particular game it was a home game in our home gym and, uh, and when we were at the free throw line one time, I was standing across from him, and he kept doing this, you know, and checking himself out a little bit. I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then we go into a huddle for a timeout, and he's standing there, and he puts his arms over his head, and he's flexing as much as he can. And everyone in the huddle is looking at him like, what are you doing? And my coach even called him out, and he said, listen, buddy, this is not the time to show off for the ladies you're going to sit down and get your head in the game. What I didn't know is that his potential future girlfriend was right across from where we were in the stands, therefore, he was attempting to bear his arms. He was attempting to show off. He wanted to reveal his strength so that he might be seen and so that people might be attracted to him. What does it mean that God is going to bear his arm? It means He is going to display his strength. He's going to reveal his power. God is going to flex. But the way he does it is absolutely astonishing. It is shocking. It is surprising. It is not by showing off in the way that you and I would think of God showing off. Consider the fact that if you had one one millionth of the ability to do the miraculous things that Jesus did, you and I would abuse them. We would make ourselves wealthy with them. We would make ourselves attractive by them. We would make ourselves loved because of them. We would want everyone to think of us like we are the greatest. We would seek out fame and fortune and we would look for reputation. That is not what Jesus did. No, instead, Jesus came and he was despised and rejected as we will see next week. Jesus was never all about himself in terms of serving himself. He says, I have come not to be served but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He displayed his strength in restraint He displayed his strength through teaching. People said, listen, I've heard all of those people in the temple speak, but there's this guy who speaks with authority. He showed strength through his teaching, which continues to this day. He showed strength that when he was treated terribly, when people abused him, Jesus did not revile in return, but he entrusted himself to the Father. He could have called down legions of angels to pull him off that cross and destroy his enemies, but he remained on that cross for sinners like you and I. That does not look like flexing to you and me. But Jesus was displaying the power of God by remaining on that cross, absorbing the wrath of God for sinners like you and me. And then we see that he also displayed his power through resurrection. Romans 1-4 tells us that it was declared to, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection reveals his power. God looks at him and says, everything you have done is yes and amen, accomplished, it is finished, it is done, I approve. And he was raised from the dead. Jesus is still being made known to this day as Isaiah promises to the whole earth. And eventually everywhere will know the promises of salvation in our God. Now all of this should thrill your soul. But it should also cause you to act Let's consider two specific commands found in this text as they apply to the church. First, we see the command at the top of this chapter. We've read it like four times. He says, awake, awake. Now, there are multiple ways that this command can be understood, and I think both are valid. First, if you are an unbeliever in the room, you need to know that you are asleep. You need to know that you are unaware of the reality that surrounds you, You are sleeping through what is significant in life. The fact of the matter is that you stand condemned by God himself. If you have not been saved by grace through faith, then you stand as an enemy of God. And if you are able to go to sleep in your bed at night, that means that you're sleeping through life. If you are able to continue on as an enemy of God, it means you are ignoring the fact that you stand at every moment in great danger. Because at the very next breath, you could die. This past uh, week, I was doing two funerals. Um, There are even more who have lost family members in this church in the last week. As I mentioned in our Tuesday prayer meeting, it feels like the cloud of death is near to us at this time. There's a lot of people who die every single moment. And that could be you, and that could be me. And at that time, you must stand before God, and you must stand there and give an account for your life. Every one of us fails the test. Every one of us falls short. So if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have to stand there and give your own account of your own record. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins, then you stand there in his righteousness. And his record is presented on your behalf. And you will never be condemned. You would never be judged. You will be told, welcome into my kingdom. Welcome to Zion. I want you to understand that when you close your eyes in death, You need to know Christ. If you do not know Christ, you will be sent into eternal torment and darkness forever. But if you do know him, you will be told, Awake, awake to eternal life forever. So I say to you right now, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, wake up, believe in the realities of Jesus Christ, and be saved. But I also believe in this context, Isaiah's message is actually supposed to be applied to the people of God. I think that in context, he's not speaking to unbelievers. In the context of this chapter, he's speaking to those who are the people of God. We, the church, need to hear these words. We need to wake up. There is a kind of slumber that the people of God can be lulled into. Sometimes this comes in the form of little compromises to sin, just a little bit here and just a little bit there. Other times it can simply be the slow lullaby of life that sedates your heart away from Christ. I mean, consider alarm clocks and deadlines and taxes and bills and weather and dance recitals and baseball games and all the other trappings of life that are not necessarily bad things, except for I mentioned taxes. They're not bad things. These things are good things. They are part of life. We are called to do them. But at the same time, they distract our attention, they remove our focus, they cause us to forget. Has your attention been stolen? Have you fallen asleep? If you are caught in some kind of sin, you need to know that is not a small thing. Just because you consider it a little sin, God does not consider it a little deal. Christ died for what you think of as acceptable sins. In 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Paul writes to a Christian audience, and he says to them, "'Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, "'and do not go on sinning, "'for some have no knowledge of God.' I say this to your shame. Here, he is not speaking about literal drunkenness, although drunkenness is a sin. Rather, Paul is suggesting that these sins they have permitted into their lives had lulled them into sleep and made them drunk. Just like the drunkest guy at the bar, these guys were not seeing reality. Just like the drunkest guy at the bar, they could not walk a straight and narrow path. Paul joins Isaiah under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and today he is telling us, church, wake up. Wake up and purge those practices of sin in your life. If there is anything that you have said, I know it's wrong, I'll deal with it eventually, deal with it right now. Again, Paul writes to believers in, Philipp- in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, and he says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, he's writing this not to unbelievers. He is writing this to those people he has already said have been saved by grace through faith. Once again, there is a command, wake up. But this time, he makes it even more broad than just battling sin. Notice the following two verses and what they include. He writes, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. The most precious resource that you have is your time. You can't get it back, and you can only spend it once. Church, let's wake up. We have limited time. Let's use it wisely for the sake of the kingdom of God. One way to do that, if you have not already, I encourage you, grab one of our Bible reading plans off the back table over there, and commit yourself to daily reading the Word. I was talking to a brother in the church recently who's been probably the most committed and most actively on top of his daily Bible reading all year uh, that I know of at least. And he spoke to me and he said, "Um, I just don't understand. It's like 10 to 15 minutes a day. It is only 10 to 15 minutes a day, but it is 10 to 15 minutes that reorients the rest of your day. It changes your focus. It changes your attention. Or if we can use Isaiah's language, it wakes you up. So I encourage you, be consistent, be faithful in your Bible reading. Also, we have a book out there that will really help you as you seek to understand the nature and character of Jesus. It's a book called Gentle and Lowly. We have lots of copies out there, and if you haven't already picked one up, I want you to take one home with you. And there is a reading plan there right next to it, and we were just going through the first uh, introduction and chapter this week. If you have not already read it, Go home today and read it, and then read through chapter 2 this week. It will bless you. It will encourage you. It will help you to wake up. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Brothers and sisters, the world's going to try to distract you. Let's wake up. The final command that I'd like to lay before you this morning is found in verse 11, which says, Depart. Depart! Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now this command for the people of Judah was incredibly broad. As they were departing from Babylon, they were said, Don't touch anything that will make you unclean. Now if you go back through the book of Leviticus, you will find there that there are seemingly hundreds upon hundreds of things that will be that will cause you to be unclean if they are touched. The Old Testament concept of purity was something we are very unaware of. We just don't live in that reality. It was a deeply entrenched ritualistic system that we just don't experience. Therefore, I think we we think of it as simple or as minor. But if you were to come into contact, for example, with a dead animal or an idol or mold or a Gentile, then you were considered ceremonially unclean. You were not permitted into places like the synagogue, to the tabernacle, to the temple. If you were sick, you were required to practice an ancient form of social distancing, and you were required to tell anyone who came near to you unclean. You were to declare your identity, not by your name, but by the fact that you are impure before God. One of the most amazing parts of the life of Jesus that's recorded for us in the Gospels is how he interacted with people that were, according to the old covenant law, unclean he interacted with gentiles he interacted with tax collectors he interacted with people who were sexually immoral and sick and any other person if they would have gone near them would have been considered unclean according to the law and to put it into modern lingo they would have been required to self-quarantine jesus would have been required to go into a place and isolate himself so that he would not contaminate anyone else with his uncleanness. But you know what you never see in the Gospels? You never see Jesus isolate himself like that. You never see himself quarantined. Why? Because he never needed to be purified. When Jesus came into contact with the unclean, he made them clean. He encountered an unclean person like a leper, and he would touch them and heal them. And he himself was not affected or infected in any way. Christian, the gospel teaches us that we have been purified by Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, verse 4 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from, the lawless, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Who does the purifying in this relationship? It is Christ who washes us clean. In the Old Covenant... He said, you go out, touch no unclean thing, and then purify yourselves. And the new covenant, we are told, I'm going to bring you out, and I am going to purify you, and I will make you clean. Hold on to that order. It is Christ who does this work in us. He is the one that purifies us. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation formed by him. The old is gone. It is dead. It is buried. It is far from view. The new has come. He has purified you. So now as Christians, we are called to live boldly as lights in this dark world. We are to depart lifestyles of wickedness. We are to abandon the priorities of our old self. And we are to actualize our calling to live daily for Jesus Christ. Depart from those ways and turn to him. So brothers and sisters, let us then boldly depart from our former worldly ways. And let us wake up from our distraction because Jesus has bought us. He has made us. He has made us His own, and He has purified us by His grace. For this reason, we have cause to rejoice. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank You that You have awakened so many people in this room, that You have awakened us to salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that in a similar way, You would awaken us to any area where we have fallen asleep, whether it is in terms of a desire to sin, an active practice of sin, or just uh, just distraction by the world. God, I pray that you would wake us up, call us to fervent and zealous pursuit of Jesus Christ. Let us run with full abandon away from anything that would contaminate us. Father, help us to live pure and holy lives. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.